Awesome. Okay. So for today, uh, we're going to skip over the chapters of Deuteronomy. Just going to mention to you real quick, uh, the main contents of these chapters is going to be of, again, that is uh, 16 and 17. The main context or contents of these chapters is just going to be a continuous espousing of the Ten Commandments following that sort of order of the Decalogue. Um, specifically today, you're going to have um, honoring the father and mother. And so that can be tied to judges, priests, leaders, the king, and the Levites. Having that sort of honor there found in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Um, and ultimately, we're going to continue on through uh, the 26th for that. But um, other than that, a lot of the stuff here is a part of the stuff that Jesus fulfills. So we don't hear to a good amount of it anymore. But it's good to see where we came from. But today, I wanted to focus more on a little bit more on the book of Proverbs to give sort of an example on how to read the the different chapters uh, in a prayerful manner and to go one by one through each and every single one so that you can get as much fruit out of reading the wisdom literature as possible. So, Jimena, whenever you're ready, feel free um, to read Proverbs 18. 18. The one who lives alone is self-indulgent, showing com contempt for all who have sound and judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing personal opinion. When wicked wickedness comes, contempt also comes, and this and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of the mouth are deep waters. And the fountain of the wisdom is a gushing stream. It is not right to the partial to be guilty to the guilty, or to subvert the innocent in the, in judgment. A fool's lips bring strife, and a fool's mouth invites a flogging. The mouths of fools are their are their ruin, and their lips. A snare to them themselves. The words of the whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of your body. One who slacks in work is close kin in the vandal. The one of the Lord is a strong tower. The Lord, the righteous, run into the into it and it, and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their strong city and their imagination it is like a high wall before destruction one's heart is haughty but humility goes before honor if one gives answer before hearing it is fully in shame the human spirit will endure sickness but a broken spirit who can bear an intelligent mind acquires knowledge, and the hear of the wise seeks knowledge. A gift open doors. It gives access to the great. The one who who first states that a case seems right until the other comes and and cross examines. Casting a lot the law puts 
an end to the disputes and deciding between powerful contenders. An alley offended is stronger than a city, like quarreling in the bar of the castle. From the fruit of the mouth, one's stomach is satisfied. The yield of the lips brings satisfaction. Death and life are the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. He who finds a wife finds good things and obtains favor with the Lord. The poor uses entreaties, but the rich answer it roughly. Some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks closer than their nearest kin. Awesome. So typically the way Lectio Divina is done is it's read um, about three times. So the first time you read it, um, just to see what you're reading. The second time you read it and sort of look for things that may stick out to you. And then the third time you is when you read it slowly and prayerfully. So I'm going to go ahead and read it a second time. And this time around, look for something that sticks out to you. And this is going to be for to everyone, it's going to be something different, okay? Um, and just go ahead and just send in chat what verse stuck out to you. And then when, when we get to it, you know, I'll expound upon it. But of course, I'm going to go down the line. So um, here's, let's start. One who is alienated seeks a pretext. With all persistence picks a quarrel. Fools take no delight in understanding, but only in displaying what they think. With wickedness comes contempt, and with disgrace, scorn. The words of one's mouth are deep waters, the spring of wisdom a running brook. It is not good to favor the guilty, nor to reject the claim of the just. The lips of fools walk into a fight, and their mouths are asking for a beating. The mouths of fools are their ruin, their lips are a deadly snare. The words of a talebearer are like daintly morsels, they sink into one's innermost being. Those lack in their work are akin to the destroyer. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The just run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their strong city. They fancy it a high wall. Before disaster, the heart is haunty, but before honor is humility. Whoever answers before listening, theirs is folly and shame. One spirit supports one when ill, but a broken spirit who can bear? The heart of the intelligent acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Gifts clear the way for people, winning access to the great. Those who plead the case first seem to be in the right. Then the opponent comes and cross-examines them. The lot puts an end to disputes and decides a controversy between the mighty. A brother offended is more unyielding than a stronghold. Such strife is more daunty than castle gates. With the fruit of one's mouth, one's belly is filled. With the produce of one's lips, one is sated. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who choose one shall eat its fruit. To find a wife is to find happiness, a favor granted by the Lord. The poor implore, but the rich answer harshly. There are friends who bring ruin, but there are true friends more loyal than a brother. Okay. So, right off the bat, did, you, did any of you guys have one of those verses stick out to you 
if not just in general, I just go over. Feel free. You can just type it in chat. Or if you want to unmute and say the verse, you can do that too. Okay, so one is verse 10. Anyone else? If not, it's okay. I'm, I'm still going to go try and go one by one through the rest of it. Uh, the goal here is just to highlight um, how to do this Lectio Divina style type reading to try and get the most out of reading the wisdom literature. Okay, so we've got verse 24. Fools take no delight in understanding, but only display what they think. That's one of the earlier verses as well. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to try and work through. Um, a good practice that you can do in between the three times that you read, uh, say a Hail Mary. For purposes here, um, we'll just go ahead and say the, the guardian angel prayer. Yeah, because one of one of the the words there in the prayer is to light and guard, to rule and guide. So, guardian angel is always seeking to protect us, and so it's good that we always reach out to him. So, let's do so in prayer. Angela Dei, qui custos es mei, mei timi cumi sum pietate superna, odie ac nocte illumine custodi reget guberna. Okay. One who is alienated seeks a pretext with all persistence, picks a quarrel. Okay. Well, we could start by just searching up what, a pre what does a pretext mean? So a pretext is a reason given in justification of a course of action that is not the real reason. So one who is alienated seeks a pretext. Interesting. So someone who's set aside someone who's put afar off they give a reason that's not the real reason as a, as a form of justification uh, an excuse a false excuse and with all persistence picks a quarrel so you can see that you know people who alienate themselves just think of people who are rude they automatically stick out but it's never their fault we see that very often. They blame everyone but themselves for them being alienated. And oftentimes, uh, they pick a quarrel. They pick a fight. And so, very, very interesting there. And you can, I'm sure right away, you can apply this to somewhere in your life very easily. You've seen this before. Maybe you've experienced this. Are you the type that picks fights? Are you the type that's alienated because of your own actions? If so, then what can you do to change that? Well, one, humility. Being able to acknowledge that you are wrong. Being able to acknowledge that there's room for improvement. So moving forward, verse 2, it says, Fools take no delight in understanding, but only in displaying what they think. So again, the theme of humility is very present. As I mentioned before, you practice one virtue, you're practicing all of them. You practice one vice. Likewise, you're also practicing all of them. 
And so what this one here means is one grows in wisdom by listening to others, but fools take delight in expounding the contents of their mind. As in, they don't want to learn, but they want to be heard. There's a sort of form of pride there. They're not trying to humble themselves to learn something. One thing my father always taught me was the day you stop learning something, or the day you don't learn anything, is the day that you die. And there's so much truth in that. Because Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. The day that you're no longer striving after the truth, even if it's the smallest thing, if, say, you learn that you prefer drinking coffee with three sugars instead of two today, if that's all you learned of the day, it's kind of sad, but you're still learning a sort of truth there in your own preference, and that's okay. But we should always strive to learn, especially humbly. Oftentimes when we speak with our Protestant brothers and sisters, some of us may, may get a big head. You think, oh, they're automatically wrong just because they're Protestant. But God speaks to us in any fashion. He can speak to us through any person. So we got to be humble and willing to learn, no matter who it is. And so you can see this many, many times. So fools, they're not going to want to listen they're not going to want to understand, but only displaying what they think. And you can also turn this around, right? Um, for the Protestants, if you've ever engaged in a conversation with them trying to evangelize, and they say, no, it's just up to our interpretations. Or, no, I just disagree with what you say. But what you say just seems so blatantly biblical and so in their face kind of way. Like, it's just there. It's just plain and simple. And you can see that there. And many times, you know, we Catholics can be the same way. And so, for living life, be humble in your learning. Be humble in your conversations with people. And be open. With wickedness comes contempt, and with disgrace, scorn. So those who are wicked, they'll, they'll be treated with contempt. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Here, this has given you exactly what to expect if you're, if you're being evil, if you're being wicked. This is what you will receive. And with disgrace and scorn. You will be scorned. You will be scolded. You'll be seen as a disgrace. You'll be sort of alienated. Do we should avoid this at all costs? Do we try and avoid wicked things? Something to think about. How are we failing? Because we're always going, we always sin. You know, everyone sins. So it's good to do a nightly exam. And if you don't already, I encourage you to, every night before bed, do an examination of conscience. And then um, pray a Lord's Prayer. Ask for forgiveness. It's good that you do this every day. So you examine. Where are you missing the mark? How did you miss the mark today? And work on it the next day. The words of one's mouth are deep waters, the spring of wisdom, a running book. So here, words express a person's thoughts, which in turn become accessible to others. So these deep waters, right? They, they come from your own person. These, they, your, your own words display your thoughts. The spring of wisdom, a running brook. 
So in other words, you know, someone who's wise, they'll, they'll have a, this spring of wisdom. They'll have a running brook. They'll have these deep waters. You can get a lot out of them if you listen. You know, I, I, I love absolutely just speaking to people who've lived life longer than I have, just older people, especially priests. They're so wise and yet so simple. What they say can be extremely simple and yet extremely profound at the same time because they've been around long enough and they're sharing with you what's in their mind, which is a mind that's been aged with, with years. And so they have experiences and such. And so it's good that you always listen, especially when someone older is talking. Because oftentimes, they can give you some beautiful insight, especially when it comes to listening to your parents. And you think, oh, mom, dad, they're, they're being whatever, right? Or whatever, mom, whatever, dad. But no, listen to what they say. I can't, I can't count on my fingers the number of times my dad's told me something. And I just like, oh, whatever, dad. And looking back, I was like, dang, I should have listened to dad. And so, again, that idea of humility. It is not good to favor the guilty, nor to reject the claim of the just. So, of course, you know, thou shalt not bear false witness, keeping the backdrop of the Ten Commandments in mind, um, which are sort of like um, a general area not to go out of, right? Well, how we're supposed to follow these commands of the Lord. So if you know somebody's wrong and you favor them, you're in a sense bearing false witness for them, relying for them. And then if you're rejecting the claim of the just, you know somebody who truly is a good person, who is trustworthy, and you reject that, well, I mean, you're breaking the commandments. And this is pretty simple. The lips of the fools walk into a, a fight and their mouths are asking for a beating. This is very simple. Is like how many times... Has it happened in your life where your tongue's got you in trouble? I know it's happened to me many, many, many times where I've just said something really stupid and I made a lot of people mad. And that's, in essence, what this can do to you. You know, if you don't keep hold of your tongue, St. Saint, um, Saint Benedict in his rule says we should not speak at all unless spoken to. I mean, that's a little extreme, but he sort of gets the idea that your tongue, which Jesus would say, reveals was from the heart, and from the heart isn't necessarily good. It defiles a person. It can get you into trouble. And here it is in the book of Proverbs telling you plainly. The mouths of fools are their ruin. Their lips are a deadly snare. The exact same concept is present here. You, know, you got to be careful with what you say. And if you're being a fool, if you're like the ones who take no delight in understanding but only want to display what they think, then you're going to get into trouble. You're going to cause trouble. You can hurt others. The words of a talebearer are like dainty morsels. They sink into one's innermost being. So. The words of a talebearer are like dainty morsels. Morsels being a small piece or amount of food. They sink into one's innermost being. Interesting. So, there's a lot you can draw from this. I think it's not always going to be easy trying to come up with or see what the text is trying to teach us. Um, 
this is one that I'd say, take it in your own prayer time. See what this means. Um, it's definitely not easy. I, I truthfully don't know. The words of a tailbearer are like daily morsels. They sink into one's innermost being. Let's see what tailbearer means. Is that a liar? Okay. So a tailbearer is a person who maliciously gossips or reveals secrets. So the words of a tailbearer are like daintly morsels, mouthfuls. They sink into one's innermost being. Again, this idea from the Gospels that what comes out of the mouth is what defiles the heart, right? So those who gossip, right, which it can be morally sinful if you gossip about somebody, which do be careful about it. Um, they sink into one's innermost being. They defile the heart very clearly here. Jesus' teachings will likely usually reflect different things that you'll see in the wisdom literature, um, stuff taught in the Old Testament, but just expounded upon even further. Or at least they were in their infancies in these sort of seed-like forms back in the Old Testament. But it's always good that if you don't understand certain passages of Scripture, search it up. Like just now, I mean, I searched up morsels, I'm not sure what that meant, and I searched up tailbear. So that gave, gives you a better key at understanding. Um, don't always just go based off of your own understanding, especially when doing this. If you need to seek help, do so. Moving on, it says, those slack in their work are kin to the destroyer. Kin being, like, you know, related um, to the destroyer, the one, of course, that would be a negative connotation, the one who destroys. You know, for those are people who don't slack, for those who are, who are slacking in work, it could cause a lot of damage, especially if, let's say you work, I don't know, at a fast food restaurant. You're slacking in getting the fries. Let's say you don't get enough and boom, you, you got an issue with the chain of, of how stuff's running. Or let's say you don't cook them right. That could have an even further negative chain of effects that come about. And so the importance of this verse would be to take pride in your work. Be serious in your work. From the fall of Adam and Eve, we are to earn from the sweat of our brow. We are to work from the sweat of our brow very clearly. Moving on in verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The just run to it and are safe. So, yes, the name of the Lord is holy. It's amazing. Here it's depicted as a strong tower, one in which people run to for safety very clearly. Um, and... Elsewhere in the Gospels, we have, or actually in the letters of Paul, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, right? Jesus' name is the name above every other name. That at, at just his name, everyone should bow, right? Really beautiful stuff here. The wealth of the rich is their strong city. They fancy it a high wall. How sad it must be if when someone says you're wealthy, it's just things of this world, right? Their strong city. Well, that's good, right? Their city's strong, but that means nothing in the coming life. This world's passing away. And they fancy a high wall. You know, keeping people out as a sign of separation. It could be a sign of, you know, being safe. And the wealth of the rich is their strong city. This strong city could be where they stay safe. And a high wall could be what protects them. But, of course, you know, there's that other side of things where if all their wealth is in their city and not in the Lord, then, I mean, they're kind of missing out. And you have that high wall of separation. 
Before disaster, the heart is haunty, but before honor is humility. Again, humility is so important. We're going to see it throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's very, very present. And so a haunty heart, meaning a heart that is arrogant, superior, or disdainful, disaster strikes when somebody is being in such a fashion. But before one is honored, there's humility. Think of Mary's Magnificat. The Lord has cast down Almighty from their thrones, has exalted the humble. He's looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this for all generations shall call me blessed. Right? Perfect humility and the highest honor. Those who are first will be last. Those who are last will be first. Jesus teaches this very clearly in the Gospels. It says, whoever answers before listening, there's this folly and shame. Again, uh, this could come from a place of pride. You don't want to be seen, wanting to be heard. Um, putting your foot in your mouth. The, the dangers of speaking in a bad sense. In Before actually thinking. You know, think before you speak. That's an old thing. And you can pull that straight out of this verse. One spirit supports one when ill, but a broken spirit who can bear. Literally speaking, that if you have... There's, there's, there's truth in, you know, stay positive, you know, many times you hear that and it can be in a negative sense with like, all you got to do is stay positive and everything you're dealing with will go away. But there's a lot of truth in that. If you're just moping and you're sad with all that you're going through, you're not going to get any better. However, think of what Jesus says. When you fast, wash your face. Do not look as though you are fasting. Your father in heaven will reward you, right? If you're called to be a Christian, you're called to bear your cross. You're called to have that joy of Christ. So no matter what ill, whether it be physically, spiritually, whatever you're going through, have a good, happy spirit, the joy. And how do you do that? Through the Beatitudes. These paradoxical promises of the new covenant. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. So on and so forth. It's so important that you keep that, keep those at the forefront of your mind. Because they teach us the best way we should live. And they show to us the promise of our Lord. The beautiful thing. The heart of the intelligent acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So what's the difference? Between somebody who acquires knowledge but for those as opposed to those who seek it tying this to the gospels i mean what it comes out of the mouth defiles the heart right so in some sense it could be a prideful sense the heart of the intelligent acquire knowledge it could be a negative connotation of those who are smart, right? Why are they smart? For who? For themselves or for others? Well, it depends. It depends on the person. Why do you acquire so much? Why do you want so much knowledge? What for? Just so you can boast it over others? This is the ear of the wise. They seek knowledge. Isn't that interesting? Those who, with the constant theme we've seen throughout this passage, those people who are stepping their foot in their mouths, who talk too much, right? The damage they can do wanting to acquire knowledge 
in some sense could, could do that through having conversations, right? But there are people who they have the ears of the wise and they don't acquire this knowledge out of pride, but truly know that they have to listen, to actually listen, to retain knowledge, to understand and to seek this knowledge. Gifts clear the way for people winning access to the great. I mean, just think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. All these gifts, the gift of faith, from the greatest saint to the least saint, it's all a gift. And they all have access to the great. And who's the great? Well, it's God. It's always going to be God. Those who plead the case first seem to be in the right. Then the opponent comes and cross-examines them. A persuasive speech in court can easily make one forget there is another side to the question. When the other party speaks, people realize they made a premature judgment. The experience at court is a lesson for daily life. There are two sides to every question. So yeah, there are two sides to every story. So be sure to listen, as the ear of the wise do, to understand. Don't make premature decisions. Because it says... Those who plead the case first seem to be right. Doesn't mean they are. The lot puts an end to disputes and decides a controversy between the mighty. So the lot, it's um, sort of like gambling type thing. Um, give me one second. Dice were given meanings of yes or no and then cast for the answer. What came out was the decision. Here, the saying interprets the sequence of actions. A human being puts the dice in the bag, but what emerges from the bag is the Lord's decision. So having this trust in the Lord. Um, you can see in the book of Acts how they casted lots for um, to decide who would replace Judas. And they were, are they just gambling it away? No, they're putting it in the faith of the Lord. It doesn't mean, however, we should gamble you know, our money away or whenever we make a life decision, we should cast lots. This is just the tradition that was given to them. It's not something we should do now. Though. But it's interesting to see that. A brother offended is more unyielding than a stronghold. Such strife is more daunting than castle gates. So someone who's offended is not giving way to pressure. They're hard. They're solid. They're unyielding. They're more yielding than a stronghold. So it's important when you're evangelizing, especially when you're evangelizing, that you don't let your ego get in the way. If you do, you can offend the other person. It's like, well, I'm Catholic and you're Protestant, you're going to hell. Who's going to want to listen to you about the beauty of the Eucharist if you just damn them to hell? Like, nobody's going to listen. That's why these Christians that go out there quote-unquote Christians, go out there and say, oh, all gay people, LGBTQ people are going to hell because of what they do. That's not going to want them to become a Christian. You're just saying that they're just the worst vile people and they deserve hell. That's if you truly want to change their minds, if you truly want to change their heart, for them to have a conversion, you should not offend them. And this, I mean, you can see this just psychologically, right? We've had studies of this where people... When they make decisions, they do it based off of emotions. It's going to be based off of emotion. Let's say you're trying to buy a house. It's a lot of money, right? Think about that. It's like, oh, a $50,000 home versus a $100,000 home. Like, whoa, it's a lot of money. But it's based off of an emotion. 
think of $50 for a night out, right? With you and your significant other, $50. Hey, yeah, go for it. Easy. The emotion. What, what, what is the emotion? It's a positive one. You want to go out and have fun, you know, celebrate. It's good, right? Versus $50 to buy all the essentials you need to meal prep and to live a healthier lifestyle. Obviously, that one's the objectively more good one, right? You know, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. These things are good. But in that decision, $50 on buying the healthy food, meal prepping it, there's the emotion behind it. Like, oh, there's more work put into it. Oh, I got to take time out of my day. Oh, it's an emotion. And so oftentimes, no matter what, people are going to be tied to their emotions, especially when it comes to religious affairs. So if you're ever evangelizing, be sure to be as charitable as possible. I cannot stress that enough. Jesus had the most important message to give. And yes, he spoke about hell many times to many people. But he always said it out of love. He never said, you're going to hell because you're not following me because you're a terrible person. So whatever. But he said, hey, what you're doing, it's wrong. And if you don't stop, you will end up in hell. And hell is the worst thing you could ever possibly imagine. And I love you so much, I don't want you to go there. So that's why I'm telling you what you're doing is wrong. And that's why I want you to change your ways. You see how very different that is? Then, dude, you're wrong. You're going to hell. Nobody's going to want to change that. And here, all the way back in the book of Proverbs, here, this, this, it's so important to see just how amazing it is, this guide for life here. Brother offended, if you offend your brother, they're going to be unyielding. They're not going to want to listen. It's sad, but it's true. So it's not good, especially especially when a soul's on the line. For you to let your pride get in the way, to be like, oh, but you're wrong. That's just not how it is. No, you got to be humble. Jesus had the truth, and he had perfect charity. Of course, we don't have perfect truth nor perfect charity, but we should try and exercise always this charity and the truth simultaneously because that's exactly what Jesus did. And it never compromised the very important message that he had. With the fruit of one's mouth, one's belly is filled. With the fruit of one's lips, one is sated. Fruit from... The earth is our ordinary sustenance, but fruit of one's lips, i.e. our words, also affect our well-being. If our words and deeds are right, then we are blessed. Our bellies are filled. And so the produce of one's lips, one is sedated. So it's important. And we've seen previously the problems that can arise from an uncontrollable mouth, but there's still good in it. In preaching the good news, in preaching the gospel. There's so much good in that, right? And oftentimes think of, I don't know if you've ever done any community service with people who are extremely poor and extreme poverty. I know I did this when I was in high school. It was a part of a, um, the National Society thing. And so we would go house to house, certain communities, and give them Christmas gifts, right? If they had kids, they'd get Christmas gifts like that, like little toys. But we'd give them blankets and heaters and all this stuff. And I'm sure 
they had their bellies filled and they were happy with that, right? But in us, at the end of that, when we all reflected on it, it, it one, made us appreciate life so much more. But two, a lot of us were willing and able to say, and rightfully so, that we got way more out of it than they did. It may seem a little weird, but it's true. We got so much more out of it than they did. And so this is, you know, the fruit of the work that we did, right? But you can do the same thing with words. Consoling somebody who's going through it. There's many, many people, even in this own server, there's countless people who, who are struggling. Giving them words of consolement. So important, so powerful. You can fill their belly and you can also fill yours. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who choose one shall eat its fruit. And so here you have it. As we've seen countless times before, death in the power of the tongue. Just putting your foot in your mouth. Life in the power of the tongue. Those who choose one shall eat its fruit. Do you want death? Do you want life? Choose. God tells you this every single day. Choose him. Choose sin. Whichever one you choose, you eat the fruit. Now, I'm sure all of you guys have seen or heard of that old uh, adage of there's two wolves inside every person. One's evil, one's good. And they ask, well, which one wins? Well, the one you feed. And it's, it's very true. It's very true. That if you're living a life of life in love for Jesus Christ, that's the fruit that you're going to eat. The fruit of Mary's womb, which is truly him. His body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. That's what you'll eat. But if you're eating death, it leads down the wrong path. There's a lot of troubles in that. To find a wife is to find happiness, a favor granted by the Lord. This is straightforward. You know, happy wife, happy life, right? But truly, it it's the husband who gets blessed by the wife. You know, the husband is supposed to be there, take care of the wife, right? And many would love to say that, oh, you know, the husband does so much and he's... Uh, the wife is so lucky to have him, all these things. But truly, it's the husband who's blessed to have a wife to find. And he finds his happiness. Countless times, I know my dad, I've, and he's just been so amazing. And he met many times, he'll say how um, he's just so blessed to have my mom because she's put up with him so much. And my mom's done so much in raising me, my brother, and my sister. It's such a blessing, really. And so to find a wife is to find happiness. And my dad truly, no matter what he's been through, and he's always, he's been through a lot, right? We all have, of course. But he's had happiness because of my mom. It's a beautiful thing. The, pow the poor implore, but the rich answer harshly. Implore. The connotation of that would mean ask humbly, you know, from a, a low state. So the poor people, meaning not necessarily like, they have no money, but the humble people, they implore. They don't demand. But what do the rich do? Or the prideful, they answer harshly. They're condescending. There are friends who bring ruin, but there are true friends more loyal than a brother. And so, yes, this is very true. You know, you got to be careful with the friends that you pick. Because truly, you pick your friends. And... It's so important that the friends you make love Jesus 
as much, if not more than you do. I'm not saying if you have friends that are atheists, stop being their friends. not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, it's very important to have Christ-centered friendships. Christ-centered friendships. That's what the church is, truly. The body of Christ is these people that are in communion, that are friends, that are brothers and sisters in Christ. These people who want to grow in love with Christ, who want to deepen their devotion to Christ, these are the people you got to be friends with. Iron sharpens iron. And that's exactly what they're going to do. You're going to push them, they're going to push you. And you're going to grow more in love with Christ. In time, you may, you know, distance yourself from your atheist friends. Maybe you just, you have different ideals. You have different practices. You have a different lifestyle. And that's okay. Jesus calls us to do this in the gospel. But if you go, it's like, I'm a Christian now, and I don't ever want to talk to you ever again. Goodbye. Well, what is that? You've been friends since like pre-K. You know, that's it's kind of ridiculous. That's, that's a lot of pride there. But truly, and I think one of the greatest examples is um, between Mari and her friend Izzy. You know, Mari, devoutly Catholic Izzy, devoutly Eastern Orthodox. Of course, there's tons of difference there. But they still love each other very much. They're still there for each other. And they're what? A Christ-centered friendship. Very beautiful stuff there. And so it's important that you have those Christ-centered friendships. And if you have people who you know, are secular, it's okay. You know, be their friend. And who knows? You could be the light in their life. Many times you'll see. And I've had this happen to me a couple of times where people are like, hey, Jova, can you pray for me? I'm going through it. There's people like... Never talk about God ever. Or they've never had a conversation. About, we've never had a conversation about God. They're very much not prayerful people. You know, some of my coworkers, they come up to me. It's like, hey, can, can you please pray for me? It's like, yeah, you got it. Hey, I'm going through it. Can you help me out? You can be that light. Jesus calls you to be that light. A light for the world. A light for Christ. And so you can do that. Moving on with the gospel, this is the prayer of Jesus. This is one of the most important chapters throughout all of the gospels because this is, in fact, the last prayer of Christ. Okay, his last sort of public prayer. Another thing that's so beautiful is that this gives us an insight onto how Jesus prayed. Many people think that the Lord's Prayer, right, the Our Father, is how Jesus prayed, but that's not really true. That's how he teaches us to pray, right? But his prayer to the Father is kind of secretive. It's not really said much. And we can see a, a glimpse of it in the, in the agony in the garden. But this chapter, it's the longest prayer of Christ. And so since around the 16th century, this has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He speaks as an intercessor with words addressed directly to the Father, not to his disciples, who supposedly only overhear. Yet the prayers in one petition for the immediate and future disciples. Many phrases reminisce the Lord's that reminisce uh, the Lord's prayer occur. Um, although still in the world, Jesus looks on his earthly ministry as a thing of the past, whereas Jesus has up to this time stated that disciples could follow him. Now he wishes them to be with him in union with the Father. So let's go ahead and keep in, these, in the backdrop of his mind. Jesus is interceding for us, right? to the Father, the fact that this is his prayer, right? This is Jesus praying. How incredible is that? This is his, his 
dialogue with the Father. Let's keep that in mind as we work through this. It says, when Jesus had said this, he raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to all you gave him. Now this is eternal life that they that they should know you, the only true God and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. Okay, just real quick. The hour has come when he's talking about the hour of his passion. All right, this is right before his passion. And so, really awesome. So what do you say? Give glory to your son so that your son may glorify you. How did Jesus receive glory? You know, he's, he's on a cross, right? He's beaten. He's spit on, humiliated. He's naked on the cross. How does, how's that glory? Well, there's glory in his resurrection, sure. But there's truly glory in the cross, in him, on the cross. How so? Again, going back to the Beatitudes. He's a perfect symbol of happiness. He's the perfect symbol of love. That's why we Catholics... And every single one of our churches have a crucifix with Jesus on it. Many Protestant brothers and sisters want to say, yo, he's off the cross already. Why do you Catholics have that? Because that's him in his full glory. Glorified. He's being glorified. He's being baptized there on the cross. That's him. That's what's happening at that moment. And yes, there's so much glory in the resurrection. But in his resurrection... He glorifies the Father. Beautiful stuff there. Look, it continues. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me, Father, with you, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They belong to you and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you gave me is from you. Because the words you gave to me, I have given to them, and they accepted them and truly understood that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for the ones you have given me, because they are yours. And everything of mine is yours, and everything of yours is mine, and I've been glorified in them. Okay, just real pause. One, I've been glorified in them. What was I just talking about? You know, you can be the light for Christ. Glorify Christ in yourself show christ through you show god's love through you tatiana is one of my closest friends and she truly so amazing she's shown me god's love in the way that she she loves me and we should do that always not just with people we're close to but with everyone when jesus says to love your neighbor and to pray for those who persecute you, love those who hate you, he means to do the same by showing God love, glorifying God in yourself for them. Previous line here, it says, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world. Some Protestant brothers would love to claim that, see, um, they have this idea of limited atonement, that Jesus only died for um, the elect, that he did not die for the world. And so they love to use this. I do not pray for the world, but for the ones you have given. In context, this is his prayers for the apostles. On the cross, he'll literally say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's he praying? He's literally praying for those who aren't his disciples. So have any doubts about that, we can read from George Haydick's Catholic Bible commentary. Here it says, 
I pray for them. I pray not for the world. This is now in this prayer when I desire special graces and assistance for them to discharge his duty as my apostles. Yet we must take notice that Christ prays for all those who should believe in him. He also prayed for all, even for those that crucified him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The prayer I now offer up to thee, O Father, is all in behalf of my disciples. It is not for the world. I pray not now for the incredulous Jews, nor for such the Gentiles, as shall afterwards believe in me. For them I will pray at another time. At present I speak to thee for my apostles only. They call for my first care, because they are thine, and thou hast given them to me. Jesus Christ prayed with an absolute and an efficacious prayer for all those for whom his prayer was to be heard. He begged for them whatever his father had predestined to give them, but asked for nothing that his father had predestined not to give him. So you see that. Very, very beautiful. He prays for all those, right? And continuing on, he says, And now I will no longer be in the world, but they are in the world while I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one just as we are. Think about that. God the Father eternally generates God the Son and their love is the Holy Spirit. Right? Think of the love. Think of the unity. They're so united. Three persons, one God. That's how united they are. We see three persons, right? We can't possibly understand the Trinity perfectly, but we still see three persons in the Trinity. But it's one God. That's how united they are. And what is Jesus saying? Keep them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one just as we are. He's praying for the unity of his disciples, for the unity of his, the leaders of his church, for the unity of the church. And he's going to continue. He says, when I was with them, I protect them in your name that you gave me. And I guarded them, and none of them was lost except the son of, of perdition, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. I speak this in the world so that they may share my joy completely. I gave them your word, and the world hated them, because they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. Consecrate them in truth. Your word is truth. So I want to draw on real quick the Greek word here, consecrate, right? Tied to word holy, right? Set apart. Um, in Greek, it's hagios, right? And so this word was specifically used in the Old Testament, we can turn to Exodus 29. The first verse, it says, this is what you are to do to consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Consecrate, same word, hagias. It's used here with the same idea. Jesus is really showing forth that the apostles truly are priests, truly are bishops, truly are leaders of the church. And using the exact same word or the same root of the word all the way from Exodus, at least from the Septuagint translation. Same Greek word Jesus is using there. And so you see that the connection there with them being, you know, presbyteroi, priests, bishops, right? And I consecrate myself for them so that they may also be consecrated in truth. I pray not only for them, but for those who will believe in me through their word, 
but that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Think about that. We jump back to John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, right? And in doing so, and having this communion of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, we abide truly in him, right? And he, who is him? He who abides in the Father. So truly, and this is what he prays, that they be united. The apostles, that we, the church, be united, just as united as the Father and Son. What a powerful prayer. And how important it is for, to Jesus for them for there not to be any division. And I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. There he goes, just driving the point home even further how much he wants unity. But look at the state of Christendom today. Look at the state of Christianity today. Countless Protestant denominations, factions within the very church. You know, you have this modernists versus traditionalists. But I, I speak of modernists as the case of, you know, people who are just slightly liberal but not heretical. Modernism is a heresy. And people who claim that, you know, liberal people are heretical, it's just, no. You know, people who will say, oh, you're going to Nova Sordo, you're liberal, right? You're a modernist. That's just, no. That's not, that's not what modernism is. Modernism is straight heresy. Going to Novi Sordo is not heresy. And so th th there's this faction. But the so-called modernists and the so-called traditionalists, neither one is true to the actual word within the very church. So that's, that's sad. But looking at Christianity in general, look at that. The countless Protestant denominations. And many people are quick to say, oh, well, the church is the people of God, right? So therefore, the church is all of the Christians, and we shouldn't be called Catholic or Baptist, or we should just be non-denominational. That's not it either. He prayed for unity. He wants us to be united, not just in name, right, Christian, but in virtue of following Christ, right? Because we're supposed to glorify him, right, in who we are. And we don't do that. If what we believe is heretical, if we don't believe in baptismal regeneration, if we don't believe in the Eucharist. So it's important to build these bridges with our Protestant brethren, right? And try and unite ourselves as much as we can. But ultimately with the goal, not as an end, not as some false ends of, you know, we have good relations. No, that should not be the end. The end should be in their conversion to the Catholic faith. The one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. This is the one church Christ established. He wants to be united in this fashion. Not by building a bridge. So if you keep the idea again, we've said this before, of a giant boat. And this is the one boat Christ established. And these people take a part of the boat and they hop off. Right? And they're now in the ocean with us. We're not supposed to give them a plank to connect us to them as the end we should give them a plank to connect us to them as a means for them to climb back onto the boat that should be the purpose that should be what ecumenism is right to have this unification eventually through their conversion
there's one church that Christ established. There's no reason to leave the church. It's the one church Christ built. No reason at all. And so he wants us united. So again, it can't be this idea of, well, everyone that's a Christian is just a part of the one church of God. This is not true because if we're divided on key issues, like is Mary the mother of God? People, people will deny that. Protestants will deny that. Of course, they'll do it out of ignorance sometimes. But some in the hardness of their hearts would just say, no, you can't call Mary that. Even though they'll acknowledge that Jesus is God, Mary's Jesus' mother, so Mary's the mother of God. They'll acknowledge that, but they'll say, no, we shouldn't call her that. So it's like jumping through hoops for no reason. There's issues with that. There's very clear issues with that. So we got to seek that unity through ecumenical ways, building those bridges, but not as a means to an end, but a means so that their end may be conversion, so they can walk on that plank back to us, onto the boat. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they see may see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, this communion, this unity. Truly, any church that does not have the Eucharist has no life in them. It's, it seems like a harsh truth, but it's the truth. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus' words, very clear. And what does eating his flesh and drinking his blood do? Allow us to abide in him and him in us. And this is his last prayer here, John 17, that we are so united that we are in him. He is in us and he is in the father. And we are in all of that. Our end goal, the whole purpose for existing, the whole purpose of life is to love, to worship, to be united with the Holy Trinity. That is our end goal in life. That is the purpose for which we are made. What is the meaning to life? To be united with the Holy Trinity in this beautiful love. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' words. Very clear. So it's important that you follow what Christ teaches. You follow his church. You're a part of his church. You're in that boat. And then when you receive Holy Communion, you realize truly this is God. This is God. It doesn't get any better. It's God. He's not going to have more glory in the coming of his, at the end of time than he does now. Except now it's just veiled. And we can't see it except with the eyes of faith. So we should put on the eyes of faith. 